0: I was a tomboy growing up. I did not play with dolls. But Barbie was not a doll. Barbie was a grown woman. And Barbie was the only toy that I can remember. My sisters, our mother, our grandmothers, and our friends all participated in playing. She came with a travel case, which I loved because then we could take her. We could take her to our grandparents, our friends on vacation. Barbie brought us all together. We were able to pick out clothes that we wanted for our individual Barbie doll. And then our mom and our grandmothers would make her clothes. Then we'd get to try them on the doll and then have like a little fashion show. It was just an amazing experience that all of us all three generations could participate in. When I had a daughter of my own, we would spend hours playing with Barbie. Some of my clothes, some of her clothes, her aunts, her cousins, her friends, all loved it. And I was comforted in a kind of sentimental way that Caroline's Barbie was playing with clothes that my mama and my grandmama made Two people she never got a chance to meet. Barbie connected all of us. Sometimes Caroline would even rope her brother Huck in to play Ken. So again, Barbie connected all of us. It was January 13, 1972, when Debbie Lynn Randall, age nine, was abducted while walking home from a laundromat in Marietta, Georgia. Debbie was a third grader at Pine Forest Elementary School. She loved her brothers, her Barbies, and dancing. She loved to play with other children, and she would often take toys with her to the laundromat so that when other children were there, they had something to play with. Her Barbies were a staple. She and the other little girls would use the large tables at the laundromat to spread out all their clothes, the carrying case, and play for hours. The laundromat was 300 feet from Debbie's front door. When she did not return home, her parents started to look for her. They found spilled detergent in the parking lot. They knew instantly something was terribly wrong. Tonight, we have Detective Morris Nix with us. In 2015, Detective Nix got on the case of Debbie Randall, y'all. He was devoted, laser-focused, and mission-driven. Detective Nix and I connected in 2017 and talked and talked and talked about ways to move this case forward. He worked other cold cases successfully, but Debbie never left him. Detective Nix began his career in law enforcement March the 1st, 1978, with the Cobb County Sheriff's Department. He remained there until 2005 when he retired. Then he spent 10 years with the Kennesaw Police Department. He was with their internal affairs and a polygraph examiner. He retired again in 2017, but he didn't sit at home. He joined the elite cold case task force with the Cobb County DA's office. There, he volunteered his time and talents. That is when he said, Debbie Lynn Randall's case, I want it. And if not for him, her case would still be on a shelf. It is my profound honor to welcome Detective Morris Nix to Zone 7. Detective, thank you for being here. So you decide when you're at this elite task force that Debbie Lynn Randall's going to be your case.
1: Well, Cheryl, I was very familiar with Debbie's case because I remember the day that it happened. I came home. I was at my mom's house. And uh, my mother was wringing her hands, looking out the kitchen window. I remember it. I could tell she was very upset. I said, Mom, what's wrong? She said, that little girl. uh, Someone is taking that little girl. I was very familiar with the area. I was very familiar with the laundromat. I had been in that laundromat over the years because my grandparents had lived right there where Debbie lived at one point. Of course, it was starting to get a lot of attention. You know, the case eventually went cold. And, uh, you know, you go on with life and get on down the road. But I was very familiar with the case. I go to work at the sheriff's office, and one of the first things I did, like a lot of deputies who start, I started out working in the jail, but I would always make it a point to talk to Sheriff Hudson. Now, Sheriff Hudson had been one of the original detectives on Debbie's case. I would ask him every question I could think of about this case. And at the time, I didn't know really much about Debbie personally. Uh, I was like, where is she buried? Where is her family? So time goes along. Of course, I you know went to do other assignments, became a polygraph examiner in 1995. But when I worked to work at Kennesaw, they had asked me to come up and help them start an uh, internal affairs unit. It was a Kalia uh, requirement. One day, Chief Bill Westenberger, who's the chief at Kennesaw, said, hey, they're starting a cold case unit at the district attorney's office. He says, if you want to go work with them, you know, we'll work that out. So approximately 2015, 2014, I was working at the cold case unit as an assignment from the police department. The first day that I got to the cold case unit, I walked in, and the first thing I said, who has the Debbie Lynn Randall case? And I realized at the time, those people on that unit, they weren't from Marietta. They weren't raised in Marietta. Uh, John Dawes, who was one of the administrators in the cold case unit, uh, he had come from Ohio. And several of the other people had come from out of state. I said, well, there's this case. some Mary case, and I started telling them about Debbie's case. So one of the guys on the unit, his name was Tony Fields, he says, let's go down to Marietta PD and see if they have anything on it. Well, I knew that some people down there had been looking at it over the years, but we go in there and we get the evidence people to bring it everything out. I was amazed at some of the things that were there. And I was also amazed at some of the things that weren't there, but that's Kind of hide it all began.
0: All right, so let's talk about the crime and the crime scene in a minute. So Debbie lived with her mom, stepmom, and two brothers, literally across the street from the laundromat. So this is a place where she would go and play and felt very comfortable being there by herself without her parents and then just would walk home. Walk us through what the crime scene looked like.
1: You know where I'm coming from this, because you've got experience with crime scene. I thought I was going to find a wealth of information. I thought there would be hundreds of photographs. I thought there'd be sketches, drawings. I thought there would be a lot of investigative material. There wasn't. I was amazed as I think we found seven or eight pictures. I don't know if they were ever taken and had disappeared over the years. The first thing that I wanted to see was the list of everyone who lived in those projects today? day she was, came up missing. There was no list, which just kind of surprised me.
0: So this particular day, why was she at the laundromat alone?
1: Well, they had gone there to do clothes. Her stepfather had given her the money, got the machine started, which was very, you know, that was common then. And what people don't understand You could probably shout across the street, but Debbie had gone over there. Her stepfather, Frank Hooker, had given her the money to get the machine started. Debbie had the habit of getting the unused detergent, soap powders, as my grandmother would say. Yeah, (laughs) and that's what she did. Now, one of the one of the questions that haunted me was. Did Deborah know her attacker? Was this someone that knew the family or was this random? Her family was convinced she knew her attacker. We now know she probably didn't. Uh, we have no connection to Debbie uh, with her attacker. But she comes out, and if you look at the photographs of where the powder was dumped or where it was thrown, I knew then that probably she had resisted or he had just grabbed it out of her hands and slung it. There was nowhere for girls to go. There was nowhere for them to gather. And so that's where they met. They, as girls would do, they played with their dolls and I think traded doll clothes or whatever they you know, did at the time. I interviewed someone later who told me, I spoke to Debbie right before she walked out the door. She said, I wanted to go with her over to her house. And my older sister said, you're not going anywhere. You're going to stay here and help me fold clothes. Now, one of the big things in this case, and Cheryl, as you know, a cult case is very different than a case that is currently being worked. On a current case, you keep everything close to your vest. You keep everything behind closed doors. When a case goes cold, that really doesn't apply so much. One of the big things that the detectives at Marietta PD did in the beginning was they diligently hid the information or kept private the information about Debbie's shoes. They thought that whoever did, the only the person who did this would know what kind of shoes she was wearing. So we wanted to keep that. We know now that that's not relevant.
0: Her parents, she doesn't come home, so they go looking for her. When they get in the parking lot, they see the spilled detergent and immediately panic. Start screaming for her, start looking for her asking people that are around, have you seen her, have you seen her? The police are eventually called. That entire county gets involved. Your mama standing in the kitchen wringing her hands upset, that's how that whole county was over this child. This is how Metro Atlanta was about this child. Y'all even had something up there called Operation Debbie where 4,000 volunteers went out looking for her everywhere. Again, her body, sadly, was found January 29th, about a 1,000 feet from Windy Hill, Powers Ferry. If
1: you go down Powers Ferry Road to Windy Hill Road, as you're headed south, on the left, there was a Houston's restaurant, which is no longer there. But if you're standing in that parking lot of Houston, the old Houston's restaurant, that's where her body was. And... I located Mike McMahon, who's the one who found her body. Mike was a student at Southern Tech, and they had asked for volunteers to look, and they were assigned that area. Mike had been a platoon leader in Vietnam. Based on my experience, he said, I saw what were signs of a possible drag mark. So I investigated said, I walked, the, the terrain sloped downward. And he walked down there, and of course, it's woods then, and he saw her body. He did not go all the way to the body. He stopped, again, because he did not want to disturb anything. And that when they found her body.
0: Now, there was some unusual components to this crime scene for me. The most compelling was she was redressed. Talk about that a little bit.
1: I thought I was thinking in my head, and this is before I ever saw in the photograph, of, of which it was only a, a handful. I thought we were going to find a nude or partially nude body. We didn't. She had on a coat. It was zipped all the way up, which I always thought was a little strange. There was some damage, facial damage, probably from wild animals. I was trying to, and which also answered some questions for me. There was a rag in her vaginal area, and I'm thinking, why did that happen? Well, looking back on it, I think that she was bleeding so profusely, he did not want her bleeding in his vehicle. So he puts the rag in there, puts her underwear back on her, takes her to this location, which I think was not planned. I think he pulled out a Dixie casting stone. She's bleeding. He stopped and thinks she's about to mess my truck up. Gets her out, walks right down, and leaves her body. I have always wondered, and, and my prayer is that she was deceased at this point, but I've also wondered if maybe he pulls out and realizes she's not dead.
0: It's probably the most troubling, because again, you're talking about a nine-year-old little girl who was so severely injured that in the autopsy, it's very clear if he had not strangled her, she would have bled to death.
1: Correct. That's how that's how bad it was. I um, have also wondered, where did he go? When he dropped her body, where did he go? Now, off Windy Hill Road, at that time, it was a dumping ground for bodies. There had been like five bodies found off Windy Hill Road. I think, and I don't know why, it's just my whatever, I think he was headed to the river. So why did he all of a sudden stop? Less, less than a quarter mile. She was bleeding profusely, didn't want to mess his vehicle up, or she wasn't dead.
0: Well, we know she was a fighter, because not only was the detergent spilled, there was an eyewitness that saw his black truck, and he and a little girl were fighting in that truck. Which brings
1: up another question. I always wondered, well, if he were alone or if she were resisting, how did he drive the truck? I'm thinking probably now he threatened Debbie for she did not resist. Once he got her in the car, that maybe she just cowered down in fear. Not because she was a coward. Those are just questions that I'll never
0: know. And this case had a couple of twists and turns that were particularly unusual. You had not one, but two ransom calls. We got
1: the crack calls, or Marietta did in the beginning of the case. The last one that I had was really not that long ago that uh, got information that from someone who said who was going to tell us where the killer was buried. He gave us a and we sent people out there to the cemetery. It was, in, uh, it was in Tucker, I believe, and gave us all these little signs that we could, and of course, it was it was ridiculous. But they were psychics. Uh, there were people who claimed to have done it. Uh, there was one individual, which um, Sheriff Hudson, who was then Detective Hudson, Along with the DA office, went to, um, I believe it was Virginia, and interviewed someone who claimed to have done it. And everything matched. He was in the area. He had a prior conviction for peeping Tom, um, just a really good lead. And he told a very convincing story to experienced investigators. Sheriff Hudson would tell me later. He said, you know, he was in a mental institution, but I just don't know, but there's some credibility there. Years later, we would track down his brother. His brother was living out west. And after a lot of work, we found his brother living, I think, Idaho. I don't don't really remember. We get the department in Idaho to see if his brother will give DNA. He did. And it was not him. Uh, I contacted Sheriff Hudson, who's now retired, retired. And I said, Sheriff, I going to let you know that guy y'all worked on it's not him. We know that it's not him. And I could talk about three or four other individuals. We had another individual who claimed he did it, and he had a prior record of such offenses, and he was in prison. First question I asked him, what was the weather that night? Because that night it rained. I said, what was the weather that night? Without hesitation, he said it was raining. And as it turns out, it was not him. I got a phone call from someone after they saw the sketch and said, "That's that's my dad. My dad molested my sister. He that is my father. That's a spitting image of my father. We lived in Marietta, around that place. That's him. Well, it wasn't. We had a lot of good leads, but none of them panned out. What I would say, and I want I'm gonna put this out there, Cheryl. You cannot because you know what I'm going to say, you cannot stress enough the importance of having a good trained crime scene technician. You cannot, you cannot stress enough about having an organized, well-maintained evidence room because I've been to enough agencies and I've seen enough things. Where I've actually told people, look, you know, y'all can get indicted for this a witness. You've got weapons missing. You've got, you can't do this. At Kennesaw, we had a girl that came to Kennesaw's crime scene and do the everything named L'Oreal Heights. What she did there was remarkable. She went through, I mean, it was just chaos. She went through completely redid everything, computerized it, organized it, and I thought, wow, this is impressive. But going back to Debbie's case, Marietta PD had done a pretty good job of this. We were very lucky. We were just very lucky. But you you know, sometimes luck is what you make it. The only thing that I really did in this show. Is I just harassed people till I got them to go along with me, and uh, that's really all that I did. Well, and because uh, I was not that's let...
0: thats all it yeah. takes sometimes.
1: Yeah, and you know, and Nancy Grace, we did three or four podcasts with her. The local media was wonderful. Uh, they did a couple of stories of which I was very grateful. When you have an active case, you keep everything close. On a cold case, you don't. You have to continuously seek the media. You have to continuously keep it in the news. You have to continuously reach out for people that will say the name, talk about it. You know, I called the Marietta Journal and said, please, please do a story on this case. It was hard to listen to Melvin, Debbie's brother, when he would call me and say, is there anything, do you know anything? Has anything changed? You know, my mama's crying. And people didn't understand that part of it.
0: When you called me, your name pops up on my phone, and I answer, I'm thrilled to hear from you, and I'm like, hey! And I don't hear anything for a second. And then finally, With your voice cracking, you say, we got him. We got him.
1: In 2015, I was on my way to Lake Eufaula to fish in a fishing tournament uh, with an organization called FLW. I'm going down the road, and I get a text from John Dawes, who is case administrator. He's like, pull over, stop. We had submitted evidence, hopefully, for DNA, thinking we would get nothing. We thought this this is, you know, 40 years old, 45 years old. Uh, Surely it's going to be, you know, not any good. But I pull over, and he's real excited. He says, we got a partial profile. He said, we know now it was a white male, a single white male. Well, Cheryl, I did not know then, and I really don't know now much about DNA. I'm what's called a DRD. That's Dirt Road Deputy. And I, I don't claim to be the sharpest knife anyway, but he was excited. And so I'm like, okay, what does that mean, parcel?" He said, well, let me put it to you this way. He said, we know it's a white male, and he said, it's not so much we know who we can know who it is, but we're going to know who it isn't, which was huge because we had a list of about 100 names.
0: Anybody Hispanic or Pan Asian or African American, you can rule them out.
1: So that narrows the field down. When this occurred, I told my wife, I said, one day, I don't know if it's going to be 10 years, 20 years, or long after I'm gone. One day, this technology will advance to where we're going to know who this is. I believed it. I believed it from my core. And I thought, if the good Lord will just let me live long enough. And, well, guess what? It wasn't 20 years. It was about seven. Well, by this time, I had the cold case unit. We had changed DAs in Cobb County. Then, of course, we had the COVID thing which they wanted nobody in the courthouse that didn't have to be there. Then we changed DAs again. And so by this time, the cold case unit, the original cold case unit had not gotten back together yet. And they were all calling me like, well, what are we waiting on? When are we going to do this? And so I got to talk about the people on this cold case unit. This case was never, ever about I and me. It was about us and we. So many people over 50 years worked on this. Then I find out that Ron Alter, he is now up at the DA's office, kind of working this. So I talked to Ron Alter, and Ron, I told Ron, I said, Ron, promise me, just promise me, you won't let this go back on the shelf. And I said, I got, we are, we're ready to go back to work on this thing. He promised me that he would not. He tells me again, we have resubmitted some more evidence. He said, we've got enough to do one more. basically the way he put it to me. Time goes by, and we're still working this thing. Me and a couple of guys are still talking to people, trying to run people down. We're trying to get in touch with anybody that knew Debbie remotely. And we find, of course, most of the people are deceased you know how about this guy well he died how about this guy well he died um i got dna samples from four ex-husbands where the wives swore they did it we had gone to south carolina they south carolina and that's where we found the letter and a sketch a drawing that we didn't even know existed that had been left out of the original file but you know time kind of goes along Then one day, Ron Alder calls me and says, Hey, we've narrowed this down, I believe he said, to two places, two possible families. And I knew in my core, I said, this is the beginning. This is the beginning of the end. A little more time rocks along. He calls me one day and says, we know who his daughter is. I knew then we got him. A little more time goes along. I'm thinking about two weeks, and I am cannot sleep. I cannot, you know, I'm just dressing. He called me back and says, his name is William Rose. And I'm going to, it's a little bit embarrassing to admit this, but I kind of went down in my basement in my corner, and I had my moment. I think it all just came out. It was a culmination of a lot of people doing a lot of work. Without that DNA, this case would not have been solved because, you know, William Rose, as we found out later, had committed suicide approximately two years after he did the crime. And over the years, I couldn't understand. I was trying to think, now, who does this kind of crime one time? Why isn't he in CODIS? And I'll let you explain to people what CODIS is, but why isn't he in CODIS? What, what, there's something missing.
0: Well, that's a conversation you and I had. And I want people to understand I love that you're giving credit and I love that you're explaining this was a us and we. I 100% agree, no doubt about it. But I do want people to know. You and I started talking in 2017 about things like the MVAT and what can be done to push this case. And you wanted to test the eyeglasses that were found at the scene. And you wanted to test other things that were at the scene that you knew that killer touched. And so you were pushing for things in 2017, 2018, that other people weren't even thinking about. So again, if not for you, we would not be here today.
1: It was just so painful sometimes to talk about this. And Debbie's dad, like I said, his family, and his her mother said, you know, I just want to know before I die. The day that Melvin called me and said, Mr. Nick, and I kept him, please don't call me Mr. Nick, but... He said, my mama died. It was a gut punch. And I felt like I have let you down. My wife will tell you that two o'clock in the morning, welcome to the living room. What are you doing up? What are you thinking about? And I'm looking at a file thinking I missed something. What did I miss?
0: Well, you and I had how many conversations saying there's no way this guy didn't reoffend. He was too violent. You know, at one point, Cheryl, I started to look at everybody who had been executed for similar crime.
1: I thought, I'm going to go through the southeast and find out in the time frame who's been executed. I could get nothing. I spent a lot of time working on that. Nothing. I could not figure out how this guy fell off the face of the earth. Of course, now we know. We know why I wouldn't get anything in coaches. We know why he didn't reoffend. And I want to thank you, Cheryl. And I really do. And I, I don't want you to cut this out. But people like yourself, people like Nancy Grace, the media, the people it is so, so important, especially in a cold case. But without the media, without people such as your show and Nancy Grace and these other people, it would be very difficult.
0: And I just got to tell folks, you know, I had a chance to be with you and Melvin not long ago, just a couple weeks ago. There was a couple things that struck me that night, that again, it's not just a job. This is literally what we have devoted our lives to. And sometimes a case comes along like Debbie's that, you can't turn it loose for whatever reason and something happened that night that i don't think i will ever get over and uh, melvin gave me something and he gave me debbie's barbie traveling case with her clothes in it
1: oh yes that was emotional for me
0: what do you do with that right i mean you how do you even thank somebody for that or to think that you know you want me to have it and he said all i want is for somebody, some little girl, to be able to enjoy them. And I knew that my great nieces would. They love Barbie. Uh, Ella Cade and Olivia, they play Barbies all the time. And I told him, I promise you that these clothes will be enjoyed and this little case will be played with. And uh, he looked at me and he pointed at you and he said, that's my brother. And it's going to mean the world to me to have the two of you in my life. I think about those clothes in that little case right this minute because last week, Melvin's house burned down. And had he not given those to me, he would have lost the last thing that he had physically of Debbie's.
1: Yes, yes.
0: So you don't have to detach yourself. I don't think you should detach yourself. You don't have to, you know, put something on a shelf and forget about it. You added to your family, Morris. Melvin is absolutely your family.
1: He is, and Melvin's had a tough time. I can't imagine, you know, Cheryl, I just can't imagine when, when a parent loses a child in any manner. It's forever. It's, it's forever. I mean, you grieve till the day you died. Uh, I am named after my father's brother. Uh, He took part in the Normandy invasion. He was killed in France fighting the Nazis. And I grew up in a household with my grandparents who never got over it. They grieved until the day they died because that's what parents do. And you're not supposed to go to your children's funeral. It's not supposed to walk that way. So I kinda sorta knew the lifelong agony because I'd seen it with my grandparents. So no matter how you lose your child, you never get over it. It never passes. I would look at Debbie's picture and I wondered what, what would she have become? What would Debbie be today? She was bright, well-liked, good kid, what would she be today? Would she be a school teacher? Would she be a doctor? Would she be a police officer? That's one of the tragedies of this.
0: Detective Morris Nix, you are a legend. You are one of the best that has ever done it. And I cannot thank you enough for being a part of my Zone 7.
1: Well, Cheryl, I appreciate you, and I appreciate everything you do.
0: I'm gonna end zone seven the way that I always do with a quote. Persistence is key. Keep pushing forward, even when things get tough. Ruth Handler, the inventor of the Barbie doll. I'm Cheryl McCollum, and this is Zone Seven.